Welcome to The Dinner Party. This is your icebreaker. I've got a joke for you. So I walked into a bookstore, and I said to the woman behind the counter, where's the self-help section? And she said, well, if I tell you that, it's going to defeat the purpose. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from author T.C. Boyle. His latest novel, San Miguel, just came out. He is one of many authors you'll be hearing from during this very special all-book episode of The Dinner Party. Yes, this week's show is a veritable audio literary salon. Mm. Invited guests include Martin Amos, Juno Diaz, Miranda July, even William Shakespeare. And also perhaps the only person who means more to literature than Shakespeare. That's right. Reading Rainbow's LeVar Burton will be here. But first, here's something we aired earlier this year when we got some small talk from an expert in all things literary. We're speaking with Sadie Stein. She is deputy editor of the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about at your parties this weekend? Well, I thought we would probably be talking about the uh, passing of the late Mike McGrady. Mike McGrady? Yes, whom you may know as the perpetrator of a 1960s sexy literary hoax. Whoa, I didn't know that. We don't keep up on... (laughs) 60s literary hoaxes, but do do fill us in. Well, in, I believe, 1969, uh, McGrady was a writer at New York Newsday. And this was the era of uh, Valley of the Dolls and a lot of other kind of salacious bestsellers. So he and his colleagues kind of for fun, I think they did this in like a week, decided they would come up with a faux salacious tell-all by a housewife, Penelope Ash, they would each write a chapter and make it as bad as possible. <laughs> and, and it was a hit, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. And he said they had to um, actually reject the few submissions. They were too good. Right. But <laughs> I wish that happened to current sexy bestseller, Shades of Grey. That did not happen. <laughs> oh, you didn't see the, the ones they rejected. Oh, I see. But, um, Are you sure Shades of Grey isn't also a prank? I, I kind of hope it, was, it is. Yeah, I think it was written by the New York Times staff. <laughs> <laughs> it, has, it has Maureen Dowd's fingerprints all over it. Or Krugman, you know. <laughs> but, what, what was it called? Naked Came the Stranger. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. I think I've oh. seen that book. But he passed away. That's that's very sad. Who attended the funeral? I kind of hope major literary luminaries were there. I think right. Jason Blair probably should. Presumably. <laughs> or at the very least, the uh, sister-in-law who J.T. Leroy style actually played the role of Penelope Ash in public. Wow. Into, until they exposed the hoax. You know what? This would never happen today, though, because there aren't enough people in newsrooms to kind of write a group book, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just... You need at least 10 guys. <laughs> yeah. uh, Sadie Stein, thanks so much for the small talk. As ever, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It is our pre-dinner history lesson with booze. And since this is an all-literary episode, we've got some Shakespeare-centric history. Of course. Back in May 1849, New York City theatergoers showed just how much they disliked a production of Macbeth. And not by writing a few angry letters to the Times, either. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. In the 1840s, the rivalry between actors William McCready and Edwin Forrest turned, well, dramatic. They were considered two of the best actors around. Both had huge success starring in Shakespeare plays. But McCready was British, classically trained and subtle. 
while Forrest was America's first homegrown Shakespeare star, self-taught and brassy. At first, the two were pals, but that changed when a London audience hissed at Forrest during a performance of King Lear. Forrest blamed a jealous MacReady for hiring the hissers. So he went to see MacReady play Hamlet and hissed at him. And when MacReady toured the U.S., Forrest followed him around, playing his own shows in every city on the tour, just to draw away his rival's audience. To New Yorkers, this wasn't some silly squabble. It was symbolic. See, working-class nativists in the city championed anything made in America, like Forrest. They resented the upper class and their love of things British, like MacReady. So when the two actors staged competing productions of Macbeth in New York, everyone expected trouble. They got it. On MacReady's opening night, nativists in the balcony pelted him with shoes and rotten eggs. And at the next performance, over 10,000 protesters showed up, bombarded the theater with stones, and tried to set it on fire. The state militia was called. Shots were fired. When the smoke cleared, dozens were dead and more injured. It was a clear illustration of the growing class divide in America, and probably the only performance of Macbeth with more blood offstage than on. That was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm here with Frank Kayafa. He is the bar manager at the Vault at Faf's, which is on Broadway, five blocks away from where the riots took place. Frank, you seem like you're too young to have been there for the riot. Yes, I have. <laughs> so, Frank, you heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? Well, in, in Victorian England, cobblers were very popular. It's a wine-based cocktail, usually sherry or port with just some fruit and sugar. Although it was an American drink invented here, Cobblers were popular there as well. So this is actually an interesting synthesis of the two cultures that were rioting at the time. Right, exactly at the time. All right, so uh, what are the ingredients in, in your cobbler? Start this recipe with cubed white peaches, and I don't really even muddle it. When it shakes with the ice, it'll impart its flavor. So I'm surprised you're not using rotten tomatoes since that's... Yeah, what... and rotten eggs. Okay, uh, first we're going to use two and a quarter ounces of Hudson four-grain bourbon. Okay. An ounce of Bordeaux, which the English call claret. Yeah. You have some sugar and a couple of dashes of house-made peach bitters. All right. Some ice. Take a healthy amount of mint. We slap it against our hands to wake it up. Is that a New York thing? Like, what's the matter with you? No, <laughs> but it could be. All right, so we wake up the mint, stick it in there. And then we top it with powdered sugar. All right, I'm going to go for it. Oh, man, that is fantastic. You know, we, this story is about a fight that happened at the theater, but have you actually had to break up fights in your time behind a bar? More than a few, and in a lot of different ways. What is the most common fight over here? Well, th today, they fight over sports teams. So who would be the nativist, the Yankees or the Mets? I'm a Mets fan, but uh, I'm not ready to throw down over it. So, Rico, Frank served that drink in this heavy goblet called a Hawthorne House glass right. that they used to use. So the drink looked authentic. It looked just as it did back in 1850, cool. except for the ice, because huh. back then, apparently, they didn't have chipped ice. That's, I guess, a good thing, because they probably would have just thrown it through windows or something. 
Uh, folks, you will find all our drink recipes at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Don't smash your monitor. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is author Lee Bardugo. This year, she published the best-selling novel Shadow and Bone. It's set in a pretty unique fictional world. Lee came in to tell us about it and to list some of her other favorite fictional locales. Hi, I'm Lee Bardugo. I'm the author of Shadow and Bone, a young adult fantasy novel set in a world inspired by Tsarist Russia. Everybody always wants to know why Tsarist Russia. And honestly, the big reason is it's not medieval England. (laughs) I felt like that was territory that had been explored by a lot of amazing authors, and I wanted to take readers someplace new. So here's my list of my favorite fantasy worlds created by other authors. My first choice are The Seven Kingdoms of Westeros, created by George R. R. Martin in his series A Song of Ice and Fire, which you may know better by the title of the first book, Game of Thrones. He takes the geographical characteristics of a place and has them inform every aspect of that world. And my favorite example of it is the Iron Islands, basically these miserable... (laughs) cold clumps of rock besieged by storms. They have no natural resources and consequently their entire culture is built up around pillaging. Every part of this society reflects that. The ruling house is House Greyjoy, so you can even hear in the language that it's damp. Their religion is the drowned god. It's everywhere and most importantly it's in the worldview of the people. This bleak ruthless kind of dignity. Honestly, when I read the first three books of A Song of Ice and Fire, I didn't write for two months afterwards. They were so good. Number two on my list is actually a movie from the early 1980s called Rock and Roll. It is animated and a little kinky and truly deeply disturbing. We had pirated cable as a kid, and I saw this probably a thousand times when I should not have been seeing it. But the premise of the story is that after World War III, all that's left are hybrid humanoids of cats and humans, rats and humans, and dogs and humans. Debbie Harry does one of the voices, and both Iggy Pop and Lou Reed lend their voices to mock the aging rock star who is trying to bring about the end of the world. My name is Mark. I'm on fire. I think as a kid, it was one of the first references I had for a post-nuclear world. It's post-apocalyptic, which has been really popular lately, and I think it has this fantastically bleak humor that's missing from a lot of um, dystopians and post-apocalyptics that are out there right now. This is kind of the way that I always looked at natural disasters ever after and man-made disasters, was that the results were not going to be just tragedy and death and unrest, but possibly a freaked out society with punk rock in it. The third choice on my list was really difficult to narrow down. I ended up going with The Kingdom of Ingery from Diana Wynne-Jones' classic Howl's Moving Castle. The movie is lovely, but the book is extraordinary. Um, 
the story centers around a girl named Sophie Hatter who works in a hat shop and has the magical ability of being able to talk life into objects. With a lot of fantasy, when people start getting into modern fairy tales and that kind of thing, it can get really twee really fast. It gets too cute and you lose the feeling of plausibility of all these magical things that are happening because there's nothing to tether you to the real world. Diana Wynne-Jones is never cutesy. All of her whimsy is tied to pretty dark, hard truths. In Howl's Moving Castle, largely about beauty and aging. I would really recommend reading this book aloud. Sophie's power is to talk life into objects, and if you think about it, when you read a book aloud, the exact same thing is happening there. You're breathing life into this world that she created. The guest list from author Lee Bardugo, Shadow and Bone, the first installment of her young adult fantasy trilogy, is out now. And just recently, DreamWorks bought the movie rights to be produced by the guy behind the Harry Potter films, so no small deal. No small deal. And Rika, I'm still waiting for my fantasy world to get optioned. Um, It involves people using their turn signals, no airline baggage fees, and a smartphone with a strong and constant signal. No one's going to buy it, though. It doesn't sound real. (laughs) Uh, Folks, we are going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to hear from Pulitzer-winning author Juno Diaz and from literary lion Martin Amos. All that and more when this all-book dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and this week it's our all-book episode featuring our favorite conversations with some of our favorite writers. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Pulitzer winner Juno Diaz and author-slash-polymath Miranda July. But first up, an interview Brendan taped a while back with Martin Amos. England's Times newspaper named him one of Britain's 50 greatest post-war authors. He's written 12 novels, including London Fields and Times Arrow. His latest novel is called Lionel Asbo, State of England, and it's about a relatively innocent young man and his brutish uncle Lionel, who ends up winning 140 million pounds in the lottery. Mm. Here's our chat. Martin, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. In an interview you gave to the Paris Review a few years ago, you described the beginning point of a novel as a throb. I believe you were quoting Nabokov. And you said it starts off as a throb or a glimmer, an act of recognition on the writer's part. Is that how this book started? Well, it's how all all books start, and I don't think you could proceed without it. It's a legitimizing frisson, and you think, here comes a novel. And uh, it's very often something you've read in the papers or a conversation you've overheard. In this case, it was three different elements that came together. One was the song, Who Let the Dogs Out, which I adapted to Who Let the Dogs In, because I'd read a terrible report about an act of revenge that involved unleashing two pit bull dogs on a baby. And also, in a problem page, a young man saying that he was having an affair with his grandmother. By problem pages, you mean kind of advice columns? Yeah, yes. I'm not surprised those two stories attracted you, but the idea of you knowing the song Who Let the Dogs Out, I find pretty surprising. I just (laughs) know I've heard it, and it's pretty hard to forget once you have. Yeah. I read a lot of British reviews of this novel. And Lionel is, a, is considered a yob, which is a, which is a term we don't use in the United States. Could you explain what a yob is? Um, it's back slang. It's boy backwards. Huh. And it means a lout. And what, do you know the history of why there is back slang? In well, the- you have it in your language. Uh, the word wonk is obvious back slang huh. for no backwards. I didn't know that. So it's like a little sophisticated crossword clue in itself. Over the course of your novels, you, we meet many yobs. What, what is your fascination? Um, 
Someone once described a novel as like the bars of a cage. You could admire the tiger, its strength, its sinister eyes, without feeling any personal danger. I think I like characters who do things that I would never do, you know, mm. who are, are sort of bold and unpredictable in ways that you know, it wouldn't occur to me to, you know, to behave like that. This book has also been described as a satire, but you don't consider it a satire. Well, satire, what is satire? Being defined attractively as militant irony. <laughs> that is, irony that seeks to bring about change. I don't think that's very useful because books, poems, novels don't bring about change, except when there's a, a fluky confluence of historical forces. I just think I write irony, but with the dial turned up. Well, in this book, one of the things you turn the dial up on is pornography. Yeah. Uh, Lionel is a big fan of it. You've written about porn for a while now, and when you started decades ago, uh, porn was primarily in magazines. Now it's everywhere. What are your thoughts on its proliferation? Because it's almost like you can't turn the dial up anymore. Um, I'm too old to inquire decently into this. But uh, <laughs> pornography is a, a very mis- misogynistic form. And it's also will have the effect of stylizing the love lives of the young. Anyone who's old enough to walk will have seen something of this. It's ubiquitous. And that's how they get their sex education now. It's not by dissecting a worm, as it was in my day. It's by watching these weird-looking, tattooed people uh, having sex. Now, someone wants to find pornography as hatred of significance in sex. Hmm. And uh, that's worth thinking about. In discussing porn's threat on love, it brings to mind your essays about nuclear weapons, which you also talk about having the power to threaten love. Yeah, well, I, I've always thought that, that love has two opposites. One is hate, and the other is death. Don DeLillo's huge novel, Underworld, mm. is, is all about this. Is the, the price we paid for that nuclear standoff when we were living in the age of deterrence. To have this cloud of death, to have this Cold War that you fight only when you're asleep, it's a a contest of nightmares, as Eric Hobsbawm called it. It's very difficult to love when you're sort of bracing yourself for impact. Mm. Um, so, yes, that was another attack on love. I, think. I find it interesting that you're a guy who is known for writing about some pretty unpleasant topics, often with glee. And yet, with these two topics at least, you've raised the alarm about the danger love faces. Why do you think you've cast yourself as you know, a protector of love? Um, Well, in my stuff, and it's only by looking at the implications of what you've done rather than having any program, but um, it's clear to me that what I value is innocence, which is in shorter and shorter supply, inevitably. I mean, when people say the world is getting worse, children no longer respect their parents, you can find that written in excrement on the walls of the cave. You know, they've been (laughs) saying that for billennia. But you can say with accuracy that the world is getting less innocent incrementally. Yeah. You know, as, as experience builds up, innocence must be threatened. And um, it is what I value most. All right. Well, along with good conversation uh, on this show, we value the answer to uh, these two standard questions we ask of each of our guests. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Well, what horrifies you is is when you're asked a question that you haven't been asked before, hmm. because then you have to really think. Oh, and, no. Hopefully and, I succeeded somewhat. Yeah, you right. did. Yeah, put the wind up me a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might not like our next question then, which is, tell us something we don't know, something you've never talked about, 
in interviews before can be a fact about you or something about the world at large? Oh, uh, when we say we love a writer's work, we're always stretching the truth because what we really mean is we love about half of it. Hmm. And that goes for Shakespeare, goes for everyone. Why do you say that? Well, it just struck me as something that hadn't been said before and, and is true. And I'm sure there are many readers who like half my stuff. You know. What about you as a reader? Uh, you're famously a big fan of Saul Bellow. You only like half his stuff? Mm, and there are some writers who score very high with me. <laughs> Bellow and Nabokov, something like 14 out of 19, I think, are masterpieces. Yeah. Um, but that's... Very rare. You were discussing him recently in a different context, but I loved how you put it. You said, Nabokov's the sort of writer that invites you in, brings you his best bottle of wine, you know, serves you the best meal, and gives you the best conversation every single and time. The, and the easiest chair nearest the fire. Yeah. Whereas Joyce, you'd wander into his place, and he'd be off somewhere preparing a meal consisting of two slabs of peat around a conger eel. <laughs> he'd be in his socks naked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Enrico, I have to say that Martin Amos is not only one of my dream dinner party guests. Really? Yeah, it's true. But he's also responsible for one of my favorite quotes about dinner parties. Okay, which is? Well, it comes from his book Money, uh, when one of his characters says, and I'm paraphrasing here, life comes down to choices, do you want to feel good at night or do you want to feel good in the morning? (laughs) And I really think that is the question at a dinner party. And both is not an option. Yeah, I usually choose night. to eavesdrop. Author and MIT professor Juno Diaz just earned a MacArthur Genius Grant for his fiction work. Five years ago, his debut novel The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde won the Pulitzer Prize. A few months back, we listened in as he read from his latest short story collection. Hi, my name is Juno Diaz, and I have a new book out called This Is How You Lose Her. It's basically the story of this young cat, this young cheater, his rise and his fall. The story we're going to hear is called The Cheater's Guide to Love. Here's the first section. Your girl catches you cheating. Well, actually, she's your fiancé. But hey, in a bit, it so won't matter. She could have caught you with one sucia. She could have caught you with two. But as you're a total cuero who didn't ever empty his email trash can... She caught you with 50. Sure, over a six-year period, but still, 50 girls? Damn. Maybe if you'd been engaged to a super open-minded Blanquita, you could have survived it. But you are not engaged to a super open-minded Blanquita. Your girl is a badass salsedeña who doesn't believe in open anything. In fact, the one thing she swore she would never forgive was cheating. I'll put a machete in you, she promised. And of course, you swore you wouldn't do it. You swore you wouldn't. And you did. She'll stick around for a few months because you dated for a long, long time. Because you went through much together. Her father's death, your tenure madness... Her bar exam passed on the third attempt. And because love, real love, is not so easily shed. Over a tortured six-month period, you will fly to the DR, 
to Mexico for the funeral of a friend, to New Zealand. You will walk the beach where they filmed the piano, something she'd always wanted to do, and now, in penitent desperation, you give it to her. She is immensely sad on that beach, and she walks up and down the shining sand alone, bare feet in the freezing water, and when you try to hug her, she says, don't. She stares at the rocks jutting out of the water, the wind taking her hair straight back. On the ride back to the hotel, you pick up a pair of hitchhikers, a couple so giddy with love that you almost throw them out the car. She says nothing. Later in the hotel, she will cry. You try every trick in the book to keep her. You write her letters. You drive her to work. You quote Neruda. You compose a mass email disowning all your sucias. You stop drinking. You stop smoking. You claim you're a sex addict and start attending meetings. You blame your father. You blame your mother. You blame the patriarchy. You blame Santo Domingo. You find a therapist. You start taking salsa classes like you always swore you would so that the two of you could dance together. You claim that you were sick. You claim that you were weak. It was the book. It was the pressure. And every hour like clockwork, you say that you're so, so sorry. You try it all, but one day she will simply sit up in bed and say, no more. And yeah. For a while, you haunt the city like a two-bit ball player dreaming of a call-up. You phone her every day and leave messages which she doesn't answer. You write her long, sensitive letters which she returns unopened. You even show up at her apartment at odd hours and at her job downtown until finally her little sister calls you, the one who was always on your side, and she makes it plain. If you try to contact my sister again... She's going to put a restraining order on you. For some Negroes, that wouldn't mean But you ain't that kind of Negro. You stop. You move back to Boston. You never see her again. Writer and MacArthur-certified genius Juno Diaz reading an excerpt from the story The Cheater's Guide to Love. You can find it in his new collection called This Is How You Lose Her. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And we continue this all-book episode with an author known for more than her books. Yes, it's Miranda July. She wrote and directed the indie films The Future and Me, You, and Everyone We Know. She is a respected multimedia and performance artist, and her short stories appear regularly in The New Yorker. I'm a little jealous of her, I have to say. Me, You, and Everyone We Know, Rico. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Last winter, I met her at her office to talk about her latest book. It's called It Chooses You. It's about her adventures meeting people who advertise in the penny saver. And Miranda, hello. Hello. So before we hear what you learned from this experience, maybe for the benefit of some listeners, you should teach us what the penny saver actually is. Right. Well, if you live in L.A., or frankly, lots of parts of the country, it's the thing that comes with the junk mail. In fact, as you were coming in, I think I was throwing out um, a whole bunch of penny savers from the last few weeks. It's just like the classified ads 
usually there's an ad for like LASIK eye surgery on the front or something like that. It's like a lot, it's like the old fashioned printed on paper booklet full of classified ads where people try to sell stuff. Right. And if you really think about it, you'll kind of be like, huh, can't believe this still exists given Craigslist. (laughs) This thing called eBay I've heard tell about. (laughs) Right. But to people like me, that's very appealing. And and I, I would usually just glance at it to see if there were any estate sales or garage sales. But during this particularly procrastination oriented period of my life, I would be like, maybe I'll just read the whole thing. You know, all the people selling things, automotive, real estate, everything. The way some people read dictionaries, you read the penny saver. Right. Or the newspaper. I thought of it as like, you know, what was going on in LA. And Like it appealed to me that none of these people were fictional. They're all real. They all lived in LA and there were their phone numbers. And you you went and interviewed these people basically who were selling stuff in the penny saver. What was the first thing you learned about them? Was there was there something common to all of them? Well, in a way, no. I mean, certainly all my preconceptions were blown away, right? I mean, the first person I met was a guy selling a leather jacket, burly guy in his sixties pink blouse, pink lipstick. He was going through a gender transformation, which he he kind of whispered to us through a crack in the door when we first showed up. And he was amazing and totally open and willing to talk about it. And then the next person was this woman who wasn't even poor. You know, that was my, at least my basic, you know, idea of who would sell things. No, she was much wealthier than me. Indian woman raising money, albeit in a really laborious way, um, <laughs> selling things for like a small town in India that needed a water pump. What was she selling? Saris. She had this idea that she could sell off some of her saris. To help this town in India? Yeah. I mean, the one thing in common was no one who really uses the penny saver uses computers. Or they have one, but they just don't relate to it because they're elderly or because they're just sort of old world, like that Indian woman. Like they're just, it's just not a part of their culture. And in that sense, I began to realize that it was almost this study of this minority, which is just people in LA who don't use computers, this thing that would go away very soon without us even noticing. I feel like we've just begun, but I think we have time for maybe one more thing you took away from this experience. Well, another thing I learned was like actually how uncomfortable I was outside of my own fictions. You know, like I, I like making stuff up. There's a reason I spend most of my life in this office. So this was a sort of self-imposed, and it's not the first time I've like forced myself to engage with strangers. I think it's some desire to counterbalance that. You know, you're out there in some part of LA without the GPS. I would ne- I, I might as well have been in like another country, and they don't care that I'm Miranda July or even really what I'm doing there. I mean, it's amazing how people didn't really question why. I was going to say one thing that's unique to all of these people and common to all of them is that they let a stranger come into their house and just like start looking around. I wouldn't do that with people I know. Did you find these people to be more open? Well, for one thing, if you're putting the ad in the penny saver, you're already expecting a phone call from a stranger, which I would never invite into my life. Although I have to say it kind of reminded me of the 70s, like of my childhood. This time when you just, you ended up, I don't know, in people's houses more. It was like a little less, you know, there was no email. So right away they were already 
I'd say not exceptionally open, just sort of typical of their era. And then I should also say a lot of people said no. You know, these these are the people who said yes. You didn't just fill half the book with empty pages to represent all the rejections. Right. Those people are entirely unrepresented. Miranda July. Her book about her penny saver adventures is called It Chooses You. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, we talk with Chef Marcus Samuelson about his best-selling memoir, Yes, Chef. Yes, we do. Plus, Reading Rainbow's LeVar Burton, once that book he lent you, returned. So here I am. You had damned well better have it. (laughs) When this all-book episode of The Dinner Party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. This is a special all-book episode of the show, but that doesn't mean we are not going to figure out a way to smuggle food into the conversation. Coming up, a chat with Top Chef winner and now memoirist Marcus Samuelson. It's a tasty chat. But first, it's time for some etiquette tips. Each week, you send us your etiquette questions, and we invite someone amazing to our studios to answer them. And back in August, it was Mr. LeVar Burton. The best thing to happen to literacy since Cliff's Notes, Rico introduced him this way. In the 70s, he starred as Kunta Kinte in the historic hit TV miniseries Roots. He played Geordi on TV's Star Trek The Next Generation. You can see him now on the TNT crime drama Perception, which debuted this month. But he is perhaps most beloved as the host of the PBS show Reading Rainbow, which for 23 years got kids excited about books. This summer, the show relaunched in the form of an educational computer app. And LeVar, welcome. Thank you so much. I laugh because during that whole introduction, you were gesturing at me to be less lavish with my praise of you. No, no, no. no. you embarrassed about being beloved? Well, no. Yes. In (laughs) fact, I am. But you said 23 years, and I was signaling that it was actually 25. But it depends on how you count, whether or not Uh, you count when we actually stopped making episodes in 2006 or when PBS stopped airing it in 2009. Well, it's not called counting, Rainbow. Yeah, you taught us how to read, not how to... Count. Not how to cipher. I understand. It's all good. Maybe you should start another show. There's your sequel. Counting Rainbows. Counting Rainbows. I think that's a Grateful Dead show, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Before we get to the app, yeah. let us talk about just books in general. You yeah. hosted Reading Rainbow for all those years. Yeah. Why was that project so important to you? Literacy is important to me. Reading, you know, I grew up in a house where my mom was, uh, was insistent that not only we read, but we really understand the value literacy brings to a human being. You can educate yourself. That's huge for evolution. She was a teacher. My mother was, yeah. She was an English teacher and then she was a social worker. And she comes from a long line of people who believe in A, education, and B, in a life of service. A certain generation regards that show so fondly. Yes. Why not just make another TV show? Why make it an app? Because the intention is to reach the next generation. And they don't watch TV? They don't watch TV as much as your generation did or my generation. They use a lot of different screens. So in order to reach them, you've got to be on some of those other screens that are occupying their attention. So this is Reading Rainbow, The Next Generation. This is Reading Rainbow, The Next Generation. (laughs) Why didn't you call the app that? I don't know. You can have that. We can give you that idea. Uh, You know what? In your hearts, you can call it The Next Generation. All right. We will. Okay. Well, we have some etiquette questions. Maybe you can help us with that. Wow. This could be dangerous because... um, You're an impolite person? No, but I (laughs) I do tell the truth. Oh, well, that's good. Okay. All right. So this question comes from Martin, who is from New Hampshire... And he asks, what's the best way to ask for your book back from a friend who borrowed it, say, three years ago? Is it hardback or paperback? 
He, he doesn't specify. Well, this is really important because paperback books are meant to give away. Hardback books, I tend to want back. So oh. if you've got my hardcover copy of anything and I come to you three years later and say, I'd like my book back, yeah. you had damned well better have. Because <laughs> I loaned you a hardback copy wow. of whatever it was I was reading. And for you, does that symbolize excellent friendship? If you lend somebody a hardback oh book, God. you must really have high regard for them. And, and so, A, I'd be surprised, but not shocked that it's taken you three years to get it back to me, mm-hmm. and B, I'd have to reevaluate your character <laughs> if you didn't have my book. So the polite thing to do, there is no polite thing. It's like, it's, I gave you my book. I gave you back. my book. You have to tell the truth. Just say, I gave you my book. You need to give it back. It's been three years, and I haven't really needed it until now, but now I'm, I looked for that book, and I remembered you have it. So here I am. At your door with an axe. It's not, I don't have an axe. No, no. And then, and then, LeVar, what's your policy after that? If Would you lend another hardback book to that friend? Good point. Not if that person didn't have my book after three years, no. Okay. But if he did or she, I would think about it. I would reevaluate which book I mm-hmm. loaned to that person. Is it one that I think I'm going to need soon? Probably. That's not one I'm going to loan. Wait, LeVar, you probably get every free book in the universe. No, I so. don't. No, I don't. I wish I did. Really? I, I wish I being me was like a ticket to free books <laughs> from the universe. I guess in a way it is. It, in a way it is. I mean, I, I just recently saw one of three perfect copies of the Gutenberg Bible wow. at uh, the National Archives at the, in Washington, D.C. Uh, Did they give it to you? Right. Because <laughs> you have to give it back if they ask. <laughs> they, they let me see it. They let me right. see it. Okay. We believe you. Uh, here's Katie. She sent this into us via Facebook. Katie writes, when someone mocks your favorite fantasy sci-fi show, how does one respond graciously? I don't know what they could be talking about. I have no clue. Um, that is a real good question. Fandoms can tend to, you know, make one hyper-passionate. Yes. Yeah, you probably know better than most. Uh, well, I, as a fan of Star Trek, I get it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, and I've always been a fan if, if I wasn't Jordy, I would be going to conventions, <laughs> trying, trying to... Stalking Jordy. Yeah, stalking Jordy, yeah, because... <laughs> That's scary. Because my wow. fandom for Star Trek is just, you know, I, I love Star Trek. So what do you do? Like, you're a Star Trek fan. Yes. Somebody says, Star Trek, that's your stupid. I, I think as a Star Trek fan, you would probably be used to having a point of view that is not everyone else's <laughs> by now. Right. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so you have to, yeah, you have to have either a thick skin or really be into pain <laughs> and, and suffering, you know? The meek well, shall inherit the earth, right? So sci-fi fans turn the other cheek and eventually... Eventually, you'll get yours, yeah. It's interesting you guys say that because I am not a sci-fi fan. Yeah. And when sometimes when I'm at a dinner party, the opposite happens. Which is? And we had this question as well, which is when you're at a party and everyone starts diving deep into some reference or topic that mm-hmm. you're oblivious to, like sci-fi, how do you stay engaged in the conversation? You know, and this happens with especially Star Trek people. They start talking Star Trek, and you feel excluded. That's why balance is really important. Is it okay to stand up on a chair and shout "nerds"? That's what I've been doing. <laughs> really? And yeah. how's that working for you? As Doctor Thoreau <laughs> <Yeah>. said, <laughs> it seems impolite. It seems like that's not really a great idea. Okay, the middle path. I like the middle path. Which is what? In a situation like this, if it were me, I would either fake it, like I was really following, or okay. <laughs> I would wait for a, a break in the conversation and find someone to engage with on a level that I could relate. Maybe say something like, hey guys, I'm an actual human being. I'm on this (laughs) planet. That's not what I would suggest. And um, I have some things to talk about. (laughs) Oh wait, that's not as interesting as Picard. Next question, please. (laughs) All right, we have one more. And this one, um, I think we have some audio tape. This comes from Evan, age 11 from Pittsburgh. Age 11? Yes. Let's roll the tape. All right. Hello, I'm Wanda. When you're at a friend's house 
and you're not that hungry, but they offer you food. Is it okay to turn it down, or do you eat it anyway and stuff yourself? Okay, so does Evan have to eat food he's been offered at a friend's house, even if he's not hungry? Evan, that is a really good question and comes up surprisingly a lot. Here's my honest response to your question. It really depends. There are some cultures where it is actually impolite as a guest to refuse food. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Chinese culture, they greet you with, have you eaten yet? Food and sustenance is at the top of the list of things that people care about. If you're in America, it's, we don't have that sort of a cultural attachment to food. But you know what? I would add to Evan, I think you're right. There's cultural difference, but don't you think it's default? If you accept people's food, they'll always be happy. Low hanging fruit to ingratiate yourself is to say, "Mm, this is delicious. But on the other hand, we have an obesity problem in this country. Do we want to be telling kids to accept whatever food is offered to them? And, And that's my point. I think all of these questions fall into the category of discernment is really the key. I I love the word discernment because it has a real concrete symbol in the world that you can really relate to. A knife is a symbol for discernment. A knife can be a weapon or a tool. It depends on the wielder who determines Mm. the purpose. And so that's what discernment actually is. Discerning what you use the tool for. What is the best, most appropriate behavior I can demonstrate in this now moment? My grandmother would have wielded the knife if I didn't eat something she offered me. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) All right. Well, Evan, you'll have to use your discernment to figure out what's best for you in this situation. But the good news is that true to his duties as a Reading Rainbow host, LeVar just taught you a new word. Discernment is the word of the day, y'all. So use it liberally and don't forget it tomorrow. LeVar Burton. It was a joy to have you on the show. Thanks for telling our audience how to behave. Thanks, guys. Butterfly in the sky I can go twice as high Take a look It's in a book A reading rainbow LeVar Burton. You can download his Reading Rainbow app at the iTunes store. And folks, even without it, we trust you're literate enough to email us your etiquette questions. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now for a book about food. It's not a cookbook. No. Although those are fun to read. I love them. Especially the parts about flour. Those are beautiful. Cliffhangers. Yeah. Poems. It's a memoir I'm going to talk about here. All right. It was written by one of the most popular chefs in the country, Marcus Samuelson. He won the TV show Top Chef in 2010. He also won the James Beard Award. He once told a joke on this show in Swedish. He, he did that too. Big deal. And earlier this year, he published a book about his life called Yes, Chef. In it, he talks about being born in Ethiopia, his adoption by a Swedish family. But what I found most interesting was his description of the almost military hierarchy that exists in kitchen culture. Hmm. So when I spoke with him, the first thing I asked him was if I should call him chef. Well, uh, you could call me Marcus, you know, uh, that, that, that would work. <laughs> okay. Or chef. The reason I asked is because in your book, you discuss your training at great length. And one thing that stands out is the rigid hierarchical structure of the professional kitchen. You know, it's almost like a military atmosphere. And for example, it becomes ingrained in all young cooks to simply say, yes, chef, to anything the head chef says. And I wonder, why does there have to be this structure? I mean, is it necessary for it to be so rigid? Well, I think, first of all, I think chefs are, it's completely, it's a sensitive craft. When you are cutting food and it's sensual and sensitivity, and it's a lot of emotions to it. Mm -hmm. And to do that, when you have hot oil and knives and a grill... You truly need some structure because there are some dangerous aspects, which I talk a lot about in Yes Chef in, in cooking as well. Yeah. And it's sort of in that mix match between those two worlds. That's where this 
brigade came up and this hierarchy came up of you, you just say yes chef to chef because mm. he or she has to be crystal clear to the staff of what they mean. You know, mm. yes, it's very liberal in many ways. It's a creative process. But uh, in the kitchen, it's pretty much a dictatorship. So you went to culinary school in Sweden, uh, and then you trained at that fine hotel in Switzerland. You also trained at some other places. Eventually, you worked at a restaurant in France that had Michelin stars and all these top-notch places. And what I found fascinating was that you were paid almost nothing for any of these gigs for years and years. You know, sometimes you only made $200 a week. Sometimes you didn't earn anything. Why is that the case in the restaurant world? And how is that acceptable? Well, it's about the hidden paycheck. What's the hidden paycheck? The hidden paycheck is everything you learn, just like everything. I learned everything in life. Those kitchens were my Harvard. Those kitchens was my master's. So if I flip that, I have to say I came out with very low debt. It was cheaper than, than, than an American Ivy League school. Another fascinating part of your tradition is called staging. This is kind of an odd part of what it means to be a chef. Can you explain what staging is to people who don't know? Well, it comes from... It comes really from stage and in the French word, and it's really about doing internships, being allowed into other chefs and other restaurants' environment, and you get be given that incredible window into learning, learning, learning. Basically, uh, one restaurant will have a great chef, and then they will call another restaurant and say, "Hey, can you take my guy for a week or for a month, or for a and year. just let him work for f- or a year and to work for free?" Yeah. Now, now you're the executive chef of Red Rooster now. You were, you know, executive chef at Aquavit. Is it hard when you're a boss to give up your best person for a month? I mean, that's got to be hard. Well, you know, part of being a chef is that you go from mentee to mentor, right? And when the team is giving you everything, 16 hours a day, when they're committed, understand the hidden paycheck, your job is then to put them to the next step and guide them to the next step in life. Some, and that is, most of the time, after two years, to let them go. Six, seven years later down the road, they're probably coming back, if you did it right. Um, and the, our world still works like that. That's fa- fascinating. And that's what you make clear in your book. There's this honorable, yeah, there's this, like, honorable notion about how you treat people. And it's so funny when you see TV shows about cooking, they see people screaming, but they don't focus also on the love and the mentorship, you know? There's one side. I'm like, the reasons why you can go hard on somebody it's because it's total trust, right? It's total trust. When I made a mistake and I, and I get a plate thrown at me or when I get a scallop, hot scallop, like, seared into my face, <laughs> you know, it's as crazy as that sound. I, I knew I made a mistake, you know. It's a crazy, crazy thought. But it is. <laughs> yeah. Mind you, I never thought that was done to me with any other reason that I screwed up that day. Yeah, there was no matter. It wasn't like, oh, they do that because I'm black or they do that because yeah. I'm the youngest. No, no, no. I screwed up, own it, Yeah. and then w- there will be less scallops in my face. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, it's interesting. So, you're, so you're men- you, know, you mentioned that you're black, which maybe some people in our radio audience do not know um, because it's radio. Um, and in your book, you talk a little bit about race. Yes, you know, it's a, a little bit. Theme. Yeah, I think it's All right, a... you, talk, you talk a lot about race. Yeah. When, when you discuss kind of what it means to be a black chef in America, you talk about how there still aren't a lot of black top chefs. In fact, you say that there are more black men and women who are partners at law firms yeah. than black men and women who are executive chefs. And you have some interesting ideas about why this is. Can you kind of share them with us? If you've always been the serving tribe without recognition about it, right? It has a different stigma. You know, I didn't work 
to put you through college in order for you to go back and do what my grandmother did. And that stigma is that that's, black people have been the servant tribe in, our, in, in this country. So it, they wanted to, we then wanted to do other things. We wanted to be lawyers, doctors, um, academia. And then there was also some, you know, I think a lot of immigrants had an easier time to get loans from the banks than African Americans. And I, I don't think in the history in a country, any other country has set it up easier for immigrants to get a bank loan than its own people. Well, we've been discussing your training and your thoughts on race. And although those things make up a good part of the book, the center of the story is your relationship to food. Yes. You are an adventurous eater. All throughout the book, you are eating snacks in Chinatown, learning how to cook in Ethiopia. Yeah. I wonder, what are you eating these days that yes. makes you happy? Oh, yo, I'm, I just came back from K-Town two days ago. Koreatown, okay. Yeah, I was like fascinated by this mall. And, and the food in the mall is fantastic. It's everyday food. And I had like these wonderful, almost like snacks, like small sushi rolls with vegetables and a little bit of egg inside. And it was absolutely delicious. I just loved it. And it's like, yes, chef. Enrico, these days you can find Marcus at Red Rooster, of a restaurant he opened in his adopted neighborhood of Harlem. Are there uh, flying scallops on the menu? Fla- <laughs> no. Flaming flying scallops? You do not need to wear sunglasses. Good. But you will find a lot of Scandinavian dishes and Southern cooking, mm. which is one reason people dig this place, because the menu and the clientele are so totally diverse. So it's like Swedish soul food, basically. Yeah, it's like deep fried Ikea <laughs> all the time. Mm. A lot of fiber. <laughs> And that's our special hyper-literate all-book episode of The Dinner Party, folks. Join us next time for an all-new episode featuring the latest in movies, music, food, and maybe a few more books, too, because you can never have too many. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. James Kim and Tamika Adams are our interns. Thanks to Brendan Willard, Jess Harwitz, Chris Peters, and Peter Clowney. Also to Skylight Books in Los Angeles. And now before we leave you, here is One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from the bookstore, library, or book club meeting near you. It's the bookiest band we could find. They're called Bell and Sebastian. Here's their song from 2003 called Wait For It, wrapped up in books. Bon appétit. We got a fantasy effect. We didn't get wet. We didn't end. But the fantasy remains. You better come back to earth again Our aspirations Rather than books Our inclinations Hidden in looks Thanks for attending The Dinner Party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, signing off from the Frank Stanton Studios, home of the public radio business show, Marketplace. Hey, stop using my microphone. And this studio is a mess. Yes, yes chef. chef. Clean it up. Ow, my face. Kai Rizdal is so harsh. But he loves us.